Um, we're continuing in a series on First Timothy. Um, the title for the, the series, and maybe, uh, Tony, if you could get that up. I, there you go. Great, man. A Holistic for Vision for the Church. And specifically what we're looking at is this idea of these unfading truths for the modern church. Um, last week we saw really the importance of sin. If you remember, the, the title of the message was A Right Interpretation of the Law. That the law, uh, it really what Paul identifies is it accomplishes a few things that we pointed out. And if we don't have a right interpretation of the law, then, then what, what happens is we get compromised in how we really know the Lord. And you may recall that's part of what the context uh, of First Timothy is about. There are some teachers that were elevating the law over the, really, the message of the hope of the gospel. And so Paul is confronting uh, those people through his instructions to Timothy to say, don't let this error, this, uh, what is other than sound doctrine, creep into the church. And uh, I'll, I'll, just as a way of, of summary of last week, one of the things that we looked at is the three purposes of, that the law fulfills in our lives. The first is it helps uh, or it operates like a locked door to restrain us from sin. So it, it, when we learn about the law, it helps us to not sin anymore. That's, that's part of it. It's also, and I think as importantly or maybe even more importantly, is it operates as a mirror a mirror by which we recognize and are confronted with our sin. And I think that's going to be a key point for us to recognize this morning as we look at the text in, in, here in 1 Timothy uh, and the verses that we're going to be covering this morning, 12 and following. And the third way that the law operates, uh, it, or it operates like a guide, uh, it's that which helps us to recognize how we are to rightly uh, operate in obedience to please the Lord. It's not necessarily by keeping the law, but it helps us recognize what, what we are to do. Um, and then finally, I, I, I kind of mentioned this, but I want to make it really, really clear this morning. Hey, Danny, Mason, am I hearing a ring? Are you hearing it too? I'm just checking. There's something in the high end. Are y'all hearing it? Okay, so Mason, do you have true pitch? Is that what it's called? Pure pitch? Relative. So you have to have one note, and then you can go from there. Okay. So that, that was, there's a reason I'm asking that question. Mason was humming this morning, finding a, a thing, and I was like, does he have perfect pitch? That's what I was looking for, perfect pitch. Um, so he doesn't. I don't know if we should trust Mason anymore. Y'all think? No? Okay. Danny, just do it without him. Thanks. Um, so the, the other aspect of the law, and, and the importance of it is this. The law does not provide us hope for salvation. It's simply the grace of Jesus Christ that salvation comes through. And, and we've sung about that all morning. We've seen it modeled in our baptism uh, this, this morning. Uh, as Michael talked about the purpose of baptism for Josh and Angel, um, he emphasized that, that it's by grace through faith that we are saved. And so it's an important thing for us to remember that what Paul is addressing is the law is inadequate to provide us salvation. And so what we're going to look at this morning is Paul presenting his own testimony through, this, uh, through these verses. And, and why I think that this is really important for us as a church today, uh, not just a modern church, but our church in particular. Well, as we've been talking about uh, our own church health, one of the things that we really need to emphasize is the value of evangelism. 
that, that we would go out and, and share the love and good news of Jesus Christ with others. Now, now let me qualify that for just a minute. Oftentimes, we talk about that. Um, and I say it almost every, at the end of every service as a way of reminder. But here's the thing. Going out and sharing the love of, of Jesus Christ is a good thing. But it is much more essential to share the good news. Because if we don't talk about people's sin and their need for Jesus Christ to be their Savior, sharing just his love is not enough. And so what I think Paul models for us in this passage today is a simple testimony that, that allows us to think about our own testimonies, those of us who are believers, so that we too can share the hope of the gospel with people that need Christ. And so it's really, this, this for us ought to be a, an encouraging focus in the scripture to say, hey, it can, a, a testimony can be this simple and this powerful, and it can stand, and we can stand firm to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people who are desperately in need of that message. So with all that said, let me, let's, let's do this. We're going to pick up a little bit of the context from last week and pick up verse uh, 8, and, and then we're going to read through verse 20, okay? So uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 8 and read through 20. So here we go. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted in ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So I wanted to read the entire context because I think it emphasizes the, the, the situation that Paul is facing. That these uh, men who had come in were teaching law. Two of them, Hymenaeus and Alexander in particular, were doing so in a false pretense of, of what their calling was. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. But, but I think that context helps us see what Paul's really wrestling with. So here's, here's what's um, kind of interesting. Um, I don't know if you 
pay attention to these things, but I, I find all this stuff just kind of fascinating as I go through the Scripture. Most often, when we find Paul's writing letters, uh, he typically does kind of this quick little introduction to the church or, or to who the, the recipient of the letter is. And then what does he do after that, like immediately? Like, he, he says, I give thanks to you, or I give thanks to the Lord because of you. That's almost always like right around verse 2 or 3 as he opens up a letter. Here, what do we find? We actually find his thanks given here late in verse 12. Where he, let's, let's go back and look at that. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. I, I, I think that is really, really important for us to recognize that distinct use or, or position of, of that occurrence. Because the distinct position helps us understand that there's something so pressing in Paul's mind that he's doing it later. And the thing that's pressing is this, his testimony. Because the shift actually occurs based on what he's experienced as a sinner compared to who he is as coming to faith in Christ because of the work of God's grace. So what he's emphasizing especially is how he was... Um, like the law bore fruit in his own life, the fruit that led him to the gospel. And, and so that's, that's what's framing his testimony. So what's interesting, we'll, we'll see this in how it's laid out. Look at verse 13. So, so he says he's thankful because of Christ Jesus the Lord, because he's judged me faithful, appointing me to his service in verse 12. Then in 13, here's where he goes back. He's like pointing back to all the things that we looked at last week about the law. He says, though formerly... I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and, ins and insolent opponent. Now, let me stop there for just a minute. If you are, uh, like, write and take notes in your Bible, um, which I highly encourage you to do, this is one of those places I would number, like, I would underline blasphemer um, and uh, persecutor and insolent opponent because it's one, two, three things. It's a triad. And Paul's actually going to contrast the triad of his sinful life with the, the the, uh, his life as a believer in just a moment. We're going to see that. And so this triad of sinful things, if you look back and remember, it, when we, and this is why I read the context of uh, verses 8 and following, he goes through those things that, that are a little bit broader than the Ten Commandments, but they give us the essence of the Ten Commandments. And that's what he's pointing to. It's the law and the broader sense of the law. And then he says of himself, I was these things. I, I, I was, in, in, in a sense, they're still broader, but they're the heart of what he struggled with in his own sinful life. And so what, what we understand from Paul is that the law brought him an, to his own awareness of his struggle. And I, I want us to, and I'm going to pull something a little bit out of context, and don't, don't let that like flagging say, Matt's doing something wrong. Okay, go to Philippians chapter uh, 3 real quick, and just a couple passages over, books back to the left. Philippians chapter 3, and when I say I'm pulling this out of context, wh why I'm saying that is, if you read the entire context, Paul's actually pointing to a negative about this. He's actually elevating the work of Christ in his life. But I want to, to like show you this because as he's contrasting who he was before Christ and then his, his real desire, it's kind of missed where I'm going to stop. Okay, so, so I'm, though I'm not, I'm not really, I'm trying to emphasize one thing over. You'll understand when we get there. So Philippians chapter 3, let's read verses 4 through 6. 
Here's, here's Paul describing him uh, himself. Um, he says, though I myself has, have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, so the, so, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now he goes on and says, but whatever gain I had, I committed as loss for the sake of Christ. He's not elevating those things to say, I, I got it all right. He's elevating those things to say, I was, if I was to be compared to the law, I was fulfilling it. He's not trying to say he was the best man, okay? He's recognizing that he was just being a, the Jew of Jews, that, that he was like, like looking at all the law and saying, I'm keeping it to every degree. But that was not his salvation. He knows that. So, so the reason I share that passage, as we look at 1 Timothy, now go back to that in verse 13, this is what he's saying. I did all these things, but... I was still a persecutor. I, I was still an insolent man. And, and I operated in wrong ways. And his point is this, that though he tried to do all these things right, once he understood the mirror of the law to him, like how it operated to him, he recognized his sin. Now look, look at the text again. At the end of verse 13, he says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. See, that ignorance in unbelief was that he wasn't trusting Christ, that he was ignorant that the law actually was pointing him to his need for Christ. Originally, he thought by upholding the law, he would be righteous. But ultimately, when confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul recognizes that he was a, pers a persecutor of Christians. And his life was actually wretched. And, and that his sin created that need for Jesus to interrupt him on the road to Damascus. And stop him right there in his tracks. And to blind him for his arrogance and his pride. And, and at that moment, he recognizes unbelief. And the ignorance of us is unbelief in the person of Christ. And he was confronted. Isn't that amazing? So we see Paul taking what we, we looked at last week about the significance of the law, how it is good, and he's recognizing the application of that in his own testimony to share with people how he came to know his need for salvation. Let me, let me pause there just for a quick moment. Can you reflect back in your own life and, and even as Christians, we still struggle with sin because we're not perfect. But do you remember what life was like for you before you understood your need for Christ? If that's so far gone, like in your memory, I want to warn you. If, refresh it. Because if it's far gone, your testimony gets inhibited. Be because we need to reflect on the grace and the mercy of Christ in our life. That needs to be something like that drives us consistently to, to re, re, awaken in us our love and appreciation for the grace of God on a daily basis in our lives. Because when we think about our sin, it, it, I think it makes us more sensitive to our sin. It, it, it elevates our drive and our, our uh, recognition 
of the goodness of Christ in our lives every day and every moment of every day. I, uh, I keep rattling, this, this thought keeps rattling my brain this morning, so I'm going to get it out so it doesn't hang loose there. I got to uh, spend Tuesday night out at camp. By the way, um, for those of you who aren't like been kept up, let me just share this real quickly this morning. Uh, thank you for all of your prayers. I know Shay uh, uh, particularly, I don't think she's in here, but she would particularly covet your prayers. Um, everything that happened Monday night with uh, a staff member, Thomas, um, Arnold, is that how, am I saying that close, Evan? Arnaud, how do you, Arsenal, that's it, thank you. I'm, I'm like, it's French of some kind, I think, and Arsenal, that's what I was like, the A-U-L-T is capturing my brain. But Thomas is 23, um, he was actually uh, discharged from the hospital this morning, um, so that's really good news, so he'll be uh, figuring out a recovery strategy for him. There's still a lot of complications, but those events with that 23-year-old young man having a heart attack Monday night were just traumatic. Shay was the one who primarily administered care to him, uh, so she's also just working through some of those things. So pray for Shay's recovery um, in that as well as Thomas and all of the, the Browns, I would add, Evan and your family. Uh, to that because Evan's just older sister. Is Claire like two years older than you? Yeah. Um, so she's engaged to Thomas. So this is, this is like really near to us as a church family. And um, so Tuesday night at camp, I was sharing, uh, got, I had the opportunity to, to speak, and there's Shay right there. I was just talking about you. Were your ears burning? Maybe? Okay, good. Um, we're, I was just telling people um, about your service as a camp nurse and asking them to pray for you and as you continue to recover. Um, so as I was speaking Tuesday night, I had the opportunity to talk about how we handle fallen leadership. And um, I'll, I'll be, I confess this to students, I don't have all the answers, but this is one of the pieces that I, I as I was studying and preparing, uh, the Lord just made me really aware of I think part of the struggle that leaders have who do fall is they grow insensitive to sin. And I read this quote to the students that um, I, I've like read 25, 30 years ago in my own life by John Owen. And it essentially says this, if you do not kill sin, sin will kill you. And, and I just... And, and now that's for believers, okay? Because as a, a lost person, we do not have the power to mortify the doctrine that he, or the, the idea he's talking about, putting to death sin, when I say he, Owen. Um, we don't have that ability apart from the Holy Spirit inside of us. But as believers, if we become sensitive and more sensitive about our sin and we continue to hold the law up before us and look at it as a mirror and help it to guide us and help it to be that locked door that prevents us, we will be consistently in, tuned in to the importance of killing sin so that it does not kill us. So, so I think that's part of why Paul is so intentional here about emphasizing the importance of the law and the mercy and grace of God because his own life reflected that. We, we can become so self-righteous in, in trying to uphold the law that we do really grow insensitive of our own sin. And we, we want to pat ourselves on the back and think, oh, we got it all right. Folks, 
apart from the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, we cannot have life, spiritual life. We are still dead in our sins and trespasses. And, and we've got the responsibility to not continue in sin so that grace may cr- increase according to Romans 6. We, we need to be sensitive to sin and putting it to death so that we honor Christ. And then as we do that, the power of our testimony increases. So here's, here's what I think um, what we see, and, and this is, I think, in, important as well. Look at, look at verse 14. So the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So this is the opposite triad or the, the contrasting triad to the earlier things that Paul listed. So let's look at these. It says, first of all, the grace of our Lord overflowed. Then there's faith and love. Let me, let me talk about this sentence structure for just a minute because I think it's really interesting. The word overflowed is actually the first word in the Greek sentence. Now, you don't have to know Greek to, to hear the, the importance of that, it, but Greek does this interesting thing. The important things or the things that the writer wants to emphasize come first. And so that, it, it, that overflowing grace it, it helps us capture a little bit more of the essence of what Paul's trying to emphasize, that grace overflows. Now, here's a cool thing about the word. It doesn't just mean like, I, I think we think, oh, it overflows a little bit. Um, like if, if the baptistry were to spill, it overflowed this morning. Like if, if Josh or Angel had been moved too fast in there, it would have created a wave and it would have overflowed and spilled out, okay? That's not the idea of this word. The idea of this word is that it completely overflows, or this more than abundant. So Dusty, thanks for filling the baptistry up. You're getting like really good at this, even like with troubleshooting, so I appreciate you, man. Um, this would have been the picture. If Dusty left the hose in there while all morning long, and it's still running right now, like we'd see the, the water doing what? Spreading across, across the concrete floor, right? It would be abundantly overflowing. That's the picture of God's grace. Our sins cannot by, like, be um, minimized in the sense that they're always overcome because of His grace. That they'll, they'll, truly, they'll never win if we're in Christ. That is a reason for us to celebrate His goodness to us because His grace is abundant. It, it's... Um, let me add this idea that I wrote down here. We find freedom from any condemnation and guilt that sin produces. Now, hang on that thought for a moment. We find freedom from any condemnation and guilt that sin produces. People in the world don't have that. They might find it for a moment in earthly relationships. They may go to church and even kind of benefit from it as, as we as church attenders and faithful to the Lord relate to one another and relate to the Lord with that. But apart from Christ, there's absolutely no freedom. They're still bound and they're bound to guilt and shame. But in Christ, because of his abundant, overflowing, completely immersive grace, we find freedom. That's why we share the gospel, folks. Because of the hope that we have. And so that's, that's the first thing that, that Paul identifies in this triad. The second 
And the, the third idea is um, relate to that grace. And they're the ideas of love and faith. Um, as I was studying this, I'll, I'll just confess that I was reading various commentators because I was like, how do these things relate? And there were a lot of views on it. And I was like, I, I'm, I'm kind of lost here. And so I said, I'm going to go back even like in... Typically, I'll read kind of modern commentators first if I get stuck someplace, and I decided to go back. And so I read Calvin's commentary on this, because Calvin's got some great commentaries here on. And so here's what he said, and I thought this was the most simple and I think the most satisfying explanation about the, the relationship of, of this. So he says this, that faith and love are indications and proofs that grace, which he had mentioned, that it might not be supposed that he boasted needlessly or without good grounds. And indeed, faith is contrasted with unbelief and love in Christ is contrasted with the cruelty with which he had exercised towards believers. As if he had said that God had so completely changed him that he had become a totally different and new man. So, so you get that? Like, I love the, the way Calvin puts it because he talks about the idea that he had been, that, that Paul had been ignorant in unbelief, but now in faith, he's no longer ignorant. You hear the contrast, right? Now he's, he's walking in such a way that he is faithful to the Lord. And then the idea that, that love in Christ is contrasted with the cruelty that Paul had expressed as he was persecuting the church. As he was basically trying to prohibit Jesus and his ministry from going out. And it's such a beautiful picture to me. I, love, I think that's why I love what Calvin said. It's just simple. And I think that's the same for me. Like if I look back at my own life and think about how the contrast of who I am as uh, formerly before Christ and who Christ is now making me into, I'm, I'm so grateful for the work of Christ. Because prior to Christ, I was selfish. I, I mean, I can list a thousand things. I, I certainly didn't love Jesus or his values, but the Lord is continually changing me to love him, to love his church, to love his people well, so that we might experience more grace. And that, that's one of the, the primary things. Remember, go back to what the aim of the book is, that we would love one another. That wasn't happening in the church there. They were struggling with that component. And they ultimately they were struggling with that because as we saw in the introductory remarks, what, what was described about them in the book of Revelation? That they had lost their first love. They lost their focus on Christ. And so I think Paul is like trying to push this up to the top to say, if, if Christ has done this in me, he can do this in you. Respond to the, the, the work of Christ according to his gr deep grace that overwhelms and his mercy so that by faith and trusting and surrendering in him, you would find love in Christ and love for one another. So let's look at verse, look at verses 15 through 17. So here's, here's what Paul's, like his testimonies, like kind of like, nutshelled right there and what we've covered so far and then he's going to move into this focus on the gospel he says this saying is trustworthy now remember what's the context 
Everything that these other false teachers were saying about the law was not trustworthy. It was dangerous. It was compromising the church. It was leading to divisions. But this, what he's about to say, this is trustworthy. Cling tightly to this. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I was foremost. Mm. I, I've said this before and I'm, I'll say it, say it again. This like is the one place that I might ever argue with scripture, not literally, but Paul saying he's the foremost of sinners or the chief of sinners, I, I could say, no, 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 Paul. I could probably have a right competition with you, you there. And I think that's a, I, I'm not, you get my point, I'm not actually arguing with scripture, but I'm saying I know my own depravity. I know my own need. And I want to stay aware of that need. I want to re reflect and remember who I was before Christ, that I would be challenged and encouraged to remember his abundant grace. Verse 16, he says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, he goes back and says it again, I'm the, the chief or the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, see what he's getting at is this picture of Christ being the one who is uh, perfect, who is the one who has provided the way of salvation for us is to be, the made, most, to be made most of. Um, I, I'm going to quote Calvin again here because I love this. He says, and, and this is a preface to the doxology that Paul's going to give us in just a minute. He says, this preface ought to be to our ears like the sound of a trumpet to proclaim the praises of the grace of Christ in order that we may believe it with a stronger faith. I love that. See, so when we think about what Christ has done on our behalf, the point is that we tune in in such a way that our faith is strengthened. Now, I, I've shared this before, and I had some people push back, but I, I've, this is probably, gosh, seven years ago. I'm, I'm going to share this again, and you can push back. It's fine. I still think I'm right in this. When we think about faith, I'm not talking like faith. We don't add to faith. It's not like faith is something that, you go, oh, I don't have enough of it. And we have to add something more to our faith. Faith is much more about being strengthened. Does, do you see the difference? Like, and, and I know when we work out and, and strengthen our muscles, that there's an increase in size. I get that. But that's the better metaphor to me then stacking up, like, people will often say, I don't have enough faith. No, your faith is weak. There's a difference. How do you strengthen your faith? You go back and you remember what Christ has done for you. That's what Paul's getting at. Let us be strengthened in our faith. That's what Calvin identifies. Our faith needs to be strengthened. How do we strengthen our faith? We look at Jesus and we love him and we long for him and we celebrate the goodness of our salvation. And we remember what our sin produced so that when we remember the goodness of his salvation, we, we rejoice in it. And we remember how it's overflowing and it's abundant in so many ways. See, all of that strengthens us. And I don't know about you, but I need to strengthen my faith every day. I do. It, it, just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I don't have struggles. I, I, I need the strength of Christ and my faith to be strengthened in Him, not in anything else. And so that's partially why putting sin to death so it doesn't kill me helps me see how Christ 
favors me every day. And I grow in grace and mercy and love because that faith is strengthened. So let me keep going with Calvin's statement. He says, um, in order that we may believe it with a stronger faith. Okay, that's that context. He says, let it be to us as a seal to impress on our hearts a firm belief of the forgiveness of sins. In other words, Paul proclaims this, the hope of Christ forgiving us of sins to be that clarion call for us to respond to the only message that brings true transformation. Hang on that for a second. The hope of Christ that he died, was buried, and rose again is the only message that brings true transformation. And folks, when we encounter people that don't have that hope, our testimony is a means, just like Paul's testimony is a means to sharing the hope that Jesus pays the penalty for sin. He alone is the way of salvation. We, we need to practice the same kind of uh, habit that Paul has established here. Being thankful for the good work that he's committed in us. He's going to be faithful to complete it, and we're just in process. But people need that hopeful message. So, um, when, when you hear this, and I, this is where I love what Paul does, um, it, it's almost like he gets so focused on the message. And, I, and remember, when, when Paul was likely writing these epistles, um, he's probably not sitting down penning this thing himself. He had what was called an amanuensis. You don't need to remember that word, but basically that's like somebody he's dictating to and they're skilled writing this stuff down. And so I can imagine Paul getting caught up in the moment and his, his amanuensis, whoever that was, uh, maybe it's Luke here, we, we don't know, but um, whoever's writing this, Paul, they're just like going crazy trying to keep up with him because he thinks about the testimony of the sinful Paul, the persecutor, the insolent man, the, the one who was uh, cursing Christ at every place, and in the abundance of the grace. And he says this about Jesus, this trustworthy saying. And in verse 16, let's go, let's go back and read this because I want to get this. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And he thinks about all these that he's going to share the message with and the hope of them coming to Christ. And he says, he can't help but just burst out in his praise. To the king of kings, I mean the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's like, boom, this is my Savior. He is the King of Ages. He's immortal. He is the invisible, the only God. He is the one who needs to be honored, not just now, but forever and ever. You hear his heart burst forth. And I think, I, I, I told Michael this when uh, we started talking about Josh and Angel being baptized today. I was like, what a great day. Because <laughs> it's such a picture of what Paul is describing. Because it's, it's like their, their baptism, them like being buried in Christ, it's just a symbol, but then rising in newness with him is like that doxology. It's like to him, to Jesus, the one who raised them, from the old Josh, the old angel, the old Matt, the old you, if you're a believer, you celebrate him 
Worship Him. Because there is no one like Him. He is the true and living God. And everything that had been happening in the church at Ephesus at this point was creating disruption. But Paul highlights what should bring unity and hope above everything else. And so here's the other interesting piece. Let's go back to, to verse 12 real quick. Actually, let's read verse 11 too. He says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, just hear this oozing forth, this blessedness of, of God, the, the importance of the gospel. But he says, with which I have been entrusted. And then verse 12, think about the word entrusted in 11. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So what Paul is actually getting at here, he's contrasting those that were teaching the law that were self-appointed teachers with he who had been uh, respond to the gospel and been appointed and entrusted with the teaching of the gospel. So, so he, he's elevating what the truth is versus what creates chaos, what creates division. And so folks, I, I want to assure you of this. What we as a church need to do, whether that's in a, a small group, a Bible study, in your individual time, whether that's in the pulpit, it doesn't matter what avenue of ministry we're in, the heartbeat of our ministry needs to be elevating Jesus Christ, that by the, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. It's not by keeping the law. It's not by doing some other good works. It's not by being the best parent or the best spouse. Those things will come about as Christ uh, sanctifies us, but those things don't provide us salvation. Jesus Christ alone provides salvation. And we live in a culture where the kind of the, the good old boy country mindset Oh, they're a good guy. You know, they, they have all these good values. That doesn't mean they're, they're saved. It does not mean that they are faithful in Christ. And we don't need to assume that people, because they come to church and they do certain things at church or they act a certain way outside of church and they're good, that we don't need to assume that they're, they're saved. We need to have deep enough conversations with family and friends and, and folks in our lives that we understand the, that they possess the hope that is found in Jesus Christ and through him alone because of, they've been saved by grace through faith. Michael, I love the fact that you kind of went back through those things about baptism, that it's his atoning work that accomplishes our salvation. It's nothing of ourselves. So where does all this leave us for today? Well, I think there's a couple things. First, I want to ask you this, and this needs to be every one of us. I, I know most of you, but, but I don't want to assume this, okay? You may be here today and you've heard the good news of Jesus Christ, but you've never truly surrendered your life to him. You, you've never confessed him as Lord and Savior and said, Lord, I know that I need Jesus Christ to be the one who paid the penalty for my sins. I'm surrendering my life to his lordship. I think that's a, a huge piece. It's like what Paul did on that road to Damascus. It, it was that confrontation and surrender. So, so don't rely on your own work. So maybe you're here today and you've, been, you've had some kind of false notion about what salvation really consists of. Can I encourage you? We here at this church, we don't invite you down front to, to make a decision here. What we want to do is we want to take some good time to counsel you to make sure that you really understand these things. So if that's you, 
would you just maybe touch base with me? And you may go, well, Matt, I, I don't want you to counsel me. I get it. Um, sometimes pastors can be intimidating. You may want somebody else. Maybe you're a female and you want uh, a female to counsel you. I get it. We'll find and connect you to someone that can help you make sure that your um, salvation is certain with Christ. So, so that's the first group that I want to address. If you're in that place and you have that, you know that you have that need, and you may say, well, how do I really know? I can tell you what happened in my own experience. I wrestled with the Lord on that for a while because I had this mental ascent. I, I like knew all these facts, but the heart transformation had never occurred. I'd never really surrendered to Christ. And so I specifically spent about six months wrestling with that very thing. The difference between knowing and surrendering Here's the best illustration I can give of that. Jesus says that even the demons believe in him, but they are not going to be redeemed. They're not going to be saved or born again. It's not enough just to know the facts. It has to be this surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Um, so I would ask this second, for those of you that, that you go, yeah, Matt, uh, I, I know that, I remember being saved. I know I've surrendered my life to Christ. I may not know the exact moment, um, but I know that that's, at some point I've really uh, confessed Him as my Lord and Savior. Here's the follow-up question. Because I think we're desperate for this in, in our era as a church especially. How are you doing sharing your testimony? I, I know none of us are Paul. But, but here's the, the, to me what I see in, in Paul's uh, accounting right here in, in a, uh, a First um, Timothy, I'm thinking Ephesians for the Ephesian church, is, is he simply models how simple it is to talk about our own sin, to talk about our own need, uh, to have Jesus save us from our sin, and to trust in his grace by, uh, through faith, and to experience a new living relationship with Christ. It's simple. How are we doing sharing our testimonies? That's an important question. Because if we're like not being bold about those things, or not at least trying to look for opportunities to intentionally share that, we're missing out what God has called us to do. Because He's called us to be people that share the love and the good news of Jesus Christ with others. See, that's our mission. Now let, me, let me mention this really quickly. We have a three-step process in ministry. It's, it's simple. Gather what we're doing here today. We might uh, do it in some other ways as well, but we gather, we grow. That's predominantly our grow group uh, ministries that happen on Sunday mornings and other times throughout uh, the week. And then the third part is go. We gather, we grow, we go. If you think about the marks of our discipleship, you can see it. Hey, Tony, could you put up the other um, logo? It's kind of hard to see up there. There you go. On our, our little lo logo guy, um, he's that worshiper. But in that, there's these six marks. And I'll run through them real quick. That we'd be people of prayer. That, uh, I'm sorry, actually, let me back up. We'd be worshipers of God. That's that, uh, this leaf on the right side. It kind of points to the highest point. It's not attached to the person. So it helps me remember that God is other than me and his being na nature and essence. But because it's the highest, I want to, everything else to point upward to him, worship him. That will be people of prayer. That kind of other leaf comes from the knee and goes up to him. So that bow the knee and go up to prayer. The head, that we'd have minds for the truth. 
that we be people that study the word, that we would have hands or our hearts to uh, steward his resources. That would be the center where everything kind of connects on the person. That we'd have hands to serve one another and other people. And ultimately, we'd have feet to go. So, so when you think about all these pieces that we have in our church life together, when we talk and try to emphasize these things, these aren't just like casual little uh, reminders or markers. They're really intentional to remind us of our privileged, high calling to go and share that good news of Jesus Christ with others so that they would know the hope of the, the gospel that we know, that they would have eternal security with Christ and be changed and transformed by His grace forever. So with that, I just want to pray. I want to pray and ask you to just respond to the Lord right where you are. And that may be one or two things. One, you may be here and you're that first group that I mentioned that you go, Matt, I, I know I've not really confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. I know the facts, but I need to surrender to Him. If that's you and in this moment of prayer, the Holy Spirit is just tapping on your heart and you're, you know, you're responding in some way, you're just you know, maybe spiritually, emotionally, I don't know how He's wired you, but there's a, a combination of things that He'll do to emphasize that. Will you just affirm in your heart, I'll seek Matt out. I'll get counsel before I leave here today. The second group, as Lord, uh, uh, for us as church members and believers, will you really consider how you're doing sharing your faith? And then this, Pray for the Lord to reveal one person in your life who he's calling you to share your faith with, to, to use, utilize your testimony. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Paul's teaching. Lord, I, I just, I know this every Sunday morning there's an aspect of me where I get in the pulpit and I'm just like, it's so exciting to be called to, to teach the wonderful word of God. And Lord, there's, it's so rich and it's piercing to my heart. And it's piercing to others' hearts. And we need to surrender to it, to submit to it. Because it is the authority by which we understand spiritual matters. And Lord, today I pray that your spirit would just over the next few seconds speak to each one of us. And we would be one convicted too convinced of the hope that we possess, convicted of sin, convicted of the hope that Jesus provides. And, and then also, Lord, you would speak to us about how we need to respond today to, to this message of the glory of the gospel. And Lord, like Paul, let it be that which creates worship for Jesus in all things. Heavenly Father, if you've placed a person's name on our minds, I, I pray that we would just do this in response to that, that we would each pray a prayer of commitment to intentionalize sharing our testimony and the, the good news of Jesus with them. And Lord, if, if we haven't had a name Maybe we're searching, going, who is it, who is it? Lord, maybe we need to be praying that you would reveal some folks to us. Building some relationships with lost folks that we need to 
um, just build that bridge of friendship with so that we can build the bridge of sharing the good news with. Let us pray towards that commitment to be available and intentional. Heavenly Father, you're so good to us. We thank you for loving us through Jesus when we were undeserving, when sin is uh, so distasteful to you that you still, by your grace, loved us with an everlasting love, that you gave us, Jesus, your only Son, to be our Savior. Lord, I pray that we would be people that don't, don't only worship him on a Sunday morning, but Lord, he would be at the forefront of our hearts and our minds all week long, and you would receive not just praise from our lips, but praise from our actions as we glorify you in all things. I think about what Paul said, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we would glorify you. So Lord, that's, that's my prayer for us this morning, that we be people that fulfill that kind of calling with a, a deep longing motivated by your abundant grace. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.